At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. And today is a coincidence day, or as, as those in the psychedelic field say, a, a day where there's synchronicity, because today I have on the conversation with me Dr. Carol Routledge, who is a senior scientist and the chief medical and scientific officer of Small Pharma Labs. And this morning, they made a, an announcement that they have their data for the first trial of their uh, DMT product in depression at six months. So it's a perfect coming together of your data and yourself, Carol. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. Yes, it's lovely to see you uh, sitting down. The last time we met, you were standing in the aisle of a of a plane as we were <laughs> both flying back from Australia. And you've been busy since then, but we'll come on to that in a minute. Let's start from the beginning. So you're a neuropharmacologist, is that right? Yes, that's right. So I did my PhD in Nottingham with Professor Charles Marsden. And it was, I guess it was in neuroscience, neuropharmacology and neurophysiology. So it was a little bit of everything, really, but but all neuroscience based. Perfect background for someone who's going to end up in the pharma industry where you're going from molecules to man. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. And in fact, that that transition place in the middle was always my favorite bit is, you know, if I talk to you about my career, you'll see that I spent a lot of my time in translational medicine. I find that the most ex- exciting component of the whole thing where you take all of your preclinical learnings and you put them towards your clinical studies. So, yeah. And I suppose, given that you were with Charles Marsden, you worked on serotonin, did you? I that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I I did work on serotonin, but actually I first of all started to work on noradrenaline and adrenaline. So my PhD really was evaluating the, I guess, the the central control of blood pressure and the central control of hypertension. So a little bit away from psychiatry and a little bit away from neurology, which I've spent the rest of my career doing. And I used the technique of microdialysis when it was quite near its infancy, which was really, really interesting, trying to understand, you know, what neurotransmitters changed in the brain with with blood pressure changes and then used, I'm going to get this wrong, but Wistar spontaneously hypertensive rats, I think that was a long, long time ago. The Wistar Kyoto rat, I think it was. That's exactly right. So I think not everyone will know what you mean when you talk about Mike. This is not a science podcast. This is a, a podcast to sort of people that are interested in drugs and things. So explain to explain to the audience what you mean by microdialysis. They may not understand. So microdialysis is really the, I guess, the implantation of a, I'm going to call it tiny, but compared to a neuron, clearly it's not, but a very small permeable I guess a, a tube which has a permeable membrane so that neurotransmitters from the outside of that tube. So neurotransmitters in the extracellular space pass down their diffusion gradient into the inside of this very small tube. 
and then you perfuse the inside of the tube. So you perfuse in through one cannula and then perfuse out of another and then you collect the perfusate and then you measure the contents of that perfusate using high performance liquid chromatography and in this case with electrochemical detection because we were looking at catecholamines and indolamines so it's I'm going to call it non-invasive I mean clearly it's not non-invasive you implant a small tube in the brain but but relatively it's non-invasive in that the perfusate goes through the center of the tube and so you can collect it steady state neurotransmitters in the brain and then you can cement it onto the skull so that actually you can evaluate neurotransmitter release in freely moving animals as well. I am sure it has progressed in the last 30 odd years to to a a better stage than it was then but actually it was still a really really good way of understanding the uh, extracellular environment. I remember vividly the first time I was at a talk when someone was showing microdialysis and I thought damn, I wish I'd been around to do that because I just finished my my bench research. And it's such a powerful technique because you get kind of real-time measures of uh, neurotransmitter output, which is something that, as us clinicians, really have desperate, <laughs> desperate to do, still haven't managed it. But in animals, you can do that, yes. In terms of real-time, looking at drug-induced changes in central neurotransmitter release was also really powerful and really useful. Well, I guess with your measuring noradrenaline and adrenaline, you could look at things that turned it on and things that turned it off. I guess, you know, that was what you were trying to understand in terms of the hypertension. I guess. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And then, you know, and move, moving on, we use it for measuring acetylcholine. And then obviously I've spent quite a lot of my career in 5-HT, so in the serotonin field, so also using it for measuring drug-induced change in the serotonin. So, yeah, re- really useful technique, I think. I'm glad I started out like that. And then you did you did you move straight into industry after that, or did you stay in academia for a bit? I can't. Where did you went off to the states? I think did you next? Yeah, I, I went off to the states. So I actually moved straight into pharmaceutical industry. I mean, not really intentionally. I guess at the end of my PhD, which I did really thoroughly enjoy, and I did learn a lot. I kind of wasn't quite sure what to do next, and then this opportunity. Well somebody that I knew was moving to the US and so I applied for jobs in the US and obviously got the job at Syntex so I moved straight there so yeah I I guess I didn't do a postdoc I went straight into industry and started working in a a neuroscience department at Syntex which was a company that was originally based in Scotland in Edinburgh and then it moved lock stock and barrel out to Palo Alto the Bay Area in California so I thought well that's a great opportunity I'll go do that. Yeah I guess the there's something to be said for California after the winters of Scotland. <laughs> there is. There is. Yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, a really great place to live. I did miss England in the end, which is why I came back, but it was a really great place to live. That was, what were you working on there? Do you, was, was it then hypertension? Yeah, a number of different things, but acetylcholine release was one of them. We were also looking at recombinant um, human nerve growth factor for cognitive function. And so trying to measure acetylcholine using microdialysis as well. So we were working on yeah, inhibitors of the enzyme that metabolizes acetylcholine. So it was really to prevent that breakdown of acetylcholine so that you increased extracellular levels with the aim of enhancing cognition. But we were also working on recombinant um, human nerve growth factor, which also has effects on cholinergic neurons and and again for a similar reason to try and enhance cognition for neurodegeneration uh, for neurodegenerative diseases obviously the cholinesterase antagonists they've actually become medicines haven't they 
We talk about tacrine and things. And Dinepazil or Aricept, yes, yes, they have become medicines now. And and they, like every other medicine, David, they they work in a proportion of patients. I think they work very well in a proportion of patients, which is about 30, 40%. And in some of those patients, they actually work for a very long time. But, you know, clearly, like all diseases, acetylcholine and preventing its breakdown is not the you know, the only thing that one needs to do to alleviate neurodegenerative diseases, but they do work. And, and yeah, they did work and they do work and they work quite well in those patients that they show efficacy in. Yeah, I always use those as one of the, the great examples of where a, a post-mortem <laughs> discovery, <laughs> the loss of acetylcholine, actually ended up being a medicine. It, you know, there aren't many examples of that, are there? But that was maybe, the, maybe one of the last. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, we, we rarely find a drug like that now, though, actually, I guess now it's genetic based, isn't it? So which is different, but it's not so different that you try to look at the imbalance or the impairment or the mutation and then you try and resolve it. So but yeah, you're right. You're right. But then the growth factors, I mean, did they didn't turn into medicines as far as I know, did they? They didn't. And I'm now I'm you're testing me because I left Syntex after five years. But one of the reasons now I'm just going to I have to get this right. I think it was based on on looking at recombinant human nerve growth factor that researchers found that it had effects on now I'm going to get this right. Is it pain? And so then they were used for medicines in pain or they couldn't oh, be used for something like that. Sorry, this is really bad. It's now it is testing my memory. So based on all of the testing for neurodegenerative diseases, they were they were shown to um, have effects on on pain C fibers. And so they actually induced pain. And then oh. based on that observation, then anti nerve growth factor molecules were used right. for pain cessation. That's how it was. Right. Cool. That makes sense. And then you left. You came back to wet old England. What, what did you come back to? You went to work for was it GSK or SKB or well, actually, first, so I, I did come back to wet old England. Believe it or not, I did miss wet old England, even though California was great. So I actually came back to work for Wyeth. So Wyeth was mainly based in the US, but it had a small, a small kind of part of the organisation in Taplow near Maidenhead. So I came back to do neurochemistry again in neuroscience in Taplow. I stayed there, for, and that's actually we started to work on. 5-HT again, so 5-HT1A receptor antagonists. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that actually turned out to be an amazing tool, not a therapy. Let's talk a bit about that. So tell people why you were working on a a 5-HT1A antagonist. So we were working on 5-HT1A antagonists for, I think, anxiolytic and antidepressant activities in the first instance. So the first molecule I worked on was way one hundred. 135 and then that was taken over by way 100 635 but then and I'm going to get this wrong as well so that that was why we initially started working on them there and then also we did a lot of work so they became really really useful pet ligands and we did a lot of work in the in pet really trying to I guess optimize these ligands for pet studies and they did really really well in that but no they never they they didn't become medicines yeah, the idea there was, I think, just for the audience, the idea was that you, you might not seem quite right. You make an antagonist of serotonin to treat depression, but because we're going to be talking about agonists in a short while. But this is the idea was, I think, you disinhibit the system, you block a presynaptic receptor, and there's 
and the system turns on, so they indirectly enhance serotonin. Was that the theory, or have I got that wrong too? Yeah, that was exactly right, and thank you for jogging my memory. Yes, it, they they blocked presynaptic inhibitory 5-HT receptors, so you're right. If you stimulate those inhibitory receptors, they stop the release of 5-HT. But if you block them, you disinhibit, and so you then get an increase in extracellular 5-HT, which was postulated to be beneficial in depression. And I think even not too long ago, they were added to SSRI so that you've got the SSRI and the 5-HT1A receptor antagonist together so that, again, you could still inhibit that presynaptic feedback. Absolutely, yeah, because there is a theory that actually it's the presynaptic feedback which takes several weeks to develop tolerance. So that's why it takes a delay in the therapeutic action of drugs like SSRIs, which enhance serotonin in the synapse. That serotonin in the synapse stimulates those 1A receptors. And and definitely, if you put a 1A antagonist in with an SSRI, you get a bigger surge of uh, serotonin. But it was, as you say, they they turned out to be the the whey compounds were beautiful. That was my my first ever PET study with a with a serotonergic agent, and it was quite intriguing. It was um, working with the, the team at the Hammersmith, showing deficiencies of or lower levels of these receptors in people with depression. And it was one of the really the first sort of he, living human evidence that serotonin had some role in depression. And it was found in this was Paul Grasby's work largely. He found reduced density of these receptors, but it also there was a ten, tendency towards reduction in d- density in, in family members. It looked like it might almost be some kind of trait marker of depression. But uh, sadly, they didn't turn into, into, into therapy. So that's why I think that time you, you were doing very well with that drug called venlafaxine, that wonderful mixed yeah, that's serotonin. Right. <laughs> SNRI, so serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. And I do remember doing some preclinical work on that again I think using microdialysis but you know trying to understand the balance of neurotransmitters that that affected and yeah ended up being a fairly good drug well it's I think it's still the strongest it is, the antidepressant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because it's it's dose titratable it lowered at lower doses it's more serotonergic and as you push the dose up you gradually recruit more and more and um, more and more of the um, noradrenaline the reuptake blockade would you like to hear my story about venlafaxine? Go on. I, don't I would you. very much like to hear it. Because <laughs> I'd like to share it before I forget. Um, <laughs> so we, we were very interested in the question of what dose of venlafaxine did you, do you need to get into you before you to start blocking the, the noradrenaline reuptake site? And we were working on a tracer. This is again at the Hammersmith. We were working on a, a noradrenaline tracer, which you could measure in the heart. So one day I was my turn to be the volunteer. So, so I took 150 milligrams of venlafaxine. As I went in the morning, I went into central London to a meeting of, at the offices of the Journal of Psychopharmacology, which I was in the process of taking over as editor of. And I was in the meeting for about 20 minutes and I suddenly, suddenly thought, I don't feel great. <laughs> I excused myself. <laughs> I, ran, I ran to the loo and then... I had a, a rather powerful uh, vomit. I went back to the meeting and then went, then went back to the other side of London and had my brain scanned. It definitely worked. Even though I'd been sick, there was still plenty of, there was still plenty of blockade in my heart. So, so that was actually, I was part of that very first proof of concept in humans that venlafaxine did block the, the noradrenaline wow. system. And what was your dose relative to the dose? I'm just interested. You, did you take like a really high dose? Well, I think I took 150 that morning. 
Um, it, over about 125, you begin to see the noradrenaline blockade. And of course, it's sensible to take it. You know, I think it was a bit. Well, we didn't have. You know, PET scans were expensive. You know, we we couldn't. You know, we, we couldn't repeat the study with different doses in individuals. But anyway, no. It's but it's true. Turned out to be an extremely useful drug for resistant depression. It's it's really the go-to standard for for people with difficult yeah, yeah, to treat yeah. depression. Until of course. We come to the modern day, but we'll keep the we we'll keep the listeners hanging on for the modern day. Let's go from YF to where you went next. And actually, you know, you you move roles and jobs, don't you, for different reasons? And some of them are right, and some of them are wrong. But they're not always linked to science. I really enjoyed my role at Wise, but I was driving around the M25 twice a day, which was a really grim journey, and I did it for three years in the direction with the traffic and then I think in the end it was just too much so I moved to Smith Pine Beecham and Derek Middlemas I don't know whether you remember Derek oh um, absolutely the man that discovered that we didn't believe him at the time but he discovered that the beta blockers were also serotonin blockers but he was right <laughs> he, he was right yeah he did so smith klein beecham which obviously eventually became glaxo smith klein and there I, I was in preclinical originally and i was working actually i'm still serotonin but one of my key projects were 5hd6 receptor antagonists which also never well they did make it into the clinic and they never made it quite to the market they were they were really interesting molecules i mean we had the most selective 5ht6 receptor antagonist you always saw in preclinical species and in humans you always saw effects on cognition so you could kind of measure them but they never really did anything that much so initially we were working on developing them for neurodegenerative diseases the cognitive mm -hmm. enhancement wasn't ever quite sufficient for neurodegenerative mm -hmm. diseases. And so then we were looking at cognitive impairment in schizophrenia, which I found absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And they did a little bit there, but again, not enough. But I, I really, I, yeah, it would be great if something worked in cognitive impairment in schizophrenia. I know clozapine does, clozapine has its issues. But, you know, it was a real unmet medical need, but also fascinatingly interesting. But yeah, I, I moved to 5-HT6 receptors. Let's just do a little bit of education again of the of the non-serotonin experts on the in the audience. So there are many different serotonin receptors. I think there are 15 or so, aren't there? And the six is the, like six that, is kind yeah. of frontal. The, the six is a special yeah, yes, it is. Oh, the frontal cortex for cognition, is it or something? Yeah, frontal cortex, amygdala, so you know, a, no, a number of different brain areas. But certainly those brain areas that are involved in cognitive function and higher executive cognitive function, which is, I think, where the theory that they and they have effects on acetylcholine release as well. So so I guess a, a number of pieces of information together or came together to indicate they may have effects in cognition. And like I said, in preclinical species, they did. So th that was back in the days of the Morris water maze and the you know, all of those types of tests. And they always demonstrated activity in the Morris water maze and other rodent cognitive tests. And then we moved them into healthy volunteer studies. And again, they always demonstrated effects in on the cognitive batteries, you know, the computerized cognitive batteries. But it was just never enough, never enough to be really, really functionally cl or clinically functionally relevant 
and hence the switch of therapeutic indication. But even then, not really. So, you know, we certainly dropped it. And I think other companies, I mean, I don't think other companies are now developing 5-HT6 receptor antagonists. I think maybe if you added 5-HT6 receptor antagonism to something else, so you had either dual or triple function, that might do it. Yeah, that would be make common kind of common sense, wouldn't it? I mean, if you had say a say your cholinesterase antagonist and boost choline, and then you put your ferrous six antagonist in to do a bit of that and a bit more, you know, maybe maybe a cocktail would have been the way forward. I mean, I guess the fact that they've been into humans means that they're safe. They're very safe. Yeah, resurrected. But as you know, developing combination therapies is actually oh, really yeah. difficult because the regulators insist on each one yeah. themselves. Being so that doubles the price yeah it? really really hard and you know often people say oh well if it's that safe it doesn't do anything so maybe they weren't so badly wrong here i don't know i mean i don't know I've, i was talking to a cardiologist at the weekend who's been instrumental in developing this poly pill you know these this pill that's got a tiny bit of beta blockers and a tiny bit of um calcium antagonists and a t- a tiny bit of diuretic, all in a little mini pill to stop people with hypertension. And uh, we were just talking about it. They spent, yeah, I mean, so they're all, these are all licensed medicines you're using in much smaller doses. So they're going to be less harmful. And, and they've always been used in combination in people before, so we know they're safe. But they've spent something like, this is a charity, they've spent over 70 million pounds trying to get through the FDA because of the, just the complexities of, of the burdens of, of using a, you know, a mixed kind of pharmacology, it's just uh, proved really damaging to them. So, Yeah, it's really hard because actually the FDA, and I, and I get it, so the FDA want to show you to show demonstrate to them just that right mixture of doses. So they don't want you to go too high in any of the doses. So you have to show the safest, most efficacious combination. But, you know, that could end up being a, a 2B or a phase 3 study with about 12 arms, just trying to get that combination right. No one can, really can afford that, yeah, or very few companies. Well, that's when I moved to clinical. So at that time, at Smith Klein Beecham, and I'm sure you remember this, the days where, or may, maybe not, but the days where preclinical would do their preclinical stuff, clinical would do their clinical stuff, and we chuck the compound over the wall and hope that the clinical people managed to deal with it. And of course, it very it rarely worked. And so they they kind of, Smith Klein Beach and brought together these, I think they were what they called therapeutic disease strategy groups or something, where they got the preclinical people to speak to the clinical people um, so that you had a much better idea of what to do with it in the clinic. And also the clinical people could inform the preclinical people of what to do preclinically. So I was leading one of those. And then that kind of moved me into the clinical arena. It was also the stage where you know phase one studies were feed and bleed and again just for the audience a feed and bleed phase one study is just where you do you give the drug and you do pk and you look at safety and you don't really do anything else so smith Klein beach wanted to put some science into those early studies and put some pharmacodynamic assessments into those early studies and that was really interesting for me because it was my start or my delving into fmri and pet studies and eg so that was really really interesting we used to work with the institute of psychiatry in london quite a lot so that was really really exciting and and it did start to change those really early clinical trials so that we really understood the dose we really understood what it did at that dose because you know i was told really early on never 
get to the end of a proof of concept study not knowing whether your study hasn't worked because you don't know the dose. So, you know, even in your early studies, it's healthy volunteers, but you can get a lot of pharmacodynamic data and a lot of pharmacology out of those studies. Well, as a clinical pharmacologist myself, I completely endorse that. I think because I mean, the worst thing of all, and, and you know, there are examples, I won't embarrass the companies on, on air, but there are examples of, of compounds which, which have actually kind of gone in, into phase three clinical trials without them actually knowing if they got in the brain, you know, which, and then discovering afterwards they didn't. So it's just an extremely expensive mistake. <laughs> we avoid that now. It is. It really, really is. Yeah, we do avoid that now. But I guess without the advent of these, you know, CNS imaging methodologies and technologies, I, I could see why that happens. But you're right. I, I, we've no excuses now, really, because the tools are there and the tools are not so expensive either. So, yeah, that moved me into clinical development. And then and that was always neuroscience. So neuroscience is, as you know, David, both psychiatry and neurology. But the company then, well, merged, was taken over. I still don't quite, I think probably Glaxo took us over or we merged. I don't know how it was, but we clearly became one much larger company. And the CNS area also became a much larger department. And so then it was split into psychiatry and neurology. And my first role then was in psychiatry, actually. GSK psychiatry was mostly in Verona. And I was in the centre of excellence for drug discovery, SEDS, as they were called, run by Emilia Angela Ratti, who lived in Verona. So we used to, the whole of the UK psychiatry department spent a lot of time in Verona, which was a very, very beautiful city and a very nice place to go. So that really, really great. I enjoyed my role very much there. And it was it was very much in the translational medicine space. You worked with preclinical colleagues and you worked with later clinical colleagues to make sure you transitioned medicines into first healthy volunteers and then patients in in the right way. And my role then was kind of going up to the end of proof of concept, sometimes a little bit further, but proof of concept. And then I left for the first time and I went to biotech. Again, really not, you know, I really enjoyed my job at GSK, but it was an opportunity and I'd never been in biotech. And as well as having a few psychiatry molecules, it had a couple of neurology molecules, also oncology. So they they did a number of different things. They were called BTG. I don't know whether you know BTG in London. It was, oh, it was, technology. yeah, it was started out as a British technology group. But when I joined, they would by then BTG. So they were, you're right, they kind of grew up helping universities in the UK to realize their commercial potential or the commercial potential of the assets that they had. And so we did all kinds of things, MRI, I think there was a car engine somewhere or parts of a car engine somewhere, uh, you know, a knee joint, but I was doing the life <laughs> sciences, CNS bits, I didn't do any of those CNS bits. So like I said, there was a psychiatry compound, there was, I think it uh, had a combination product, which was an SSRI and an esterase inhibitor, like we were talking about before, but that was really difficult. And I was faced with like a nine arm phase two B study, which was really difficult. I also worked on an omega oil for multiple sclerosis, which didn't work in the end, but it was a really interesting trial to set up. So I was there for about five and a half, six and a half years, 
really, really enjoyed it. Massively steep learning curve. I think at one stage I was even acting head of CMC, which really is not my area at all. But, you know, you use consultants, you use external people, you use CROs. So. I don't think everyone will know what CMC is doing. It's, I guess it's the manufacturing of it molecules for GMP reasons. So when you go into clinical trials, yeah, you make your, you make, you synthesize your, your drugs. So it was really synthesizing drug substance and your drug products. But it was great, really steep learning curve, learned a lot about regulatory there, learned a lot about toxicology, manufacturing, as I've said. But then I decided to move back to GSK, but this time into the biopharmaceutical division because I'd done small molecules and the opportunity that was presented to me by and a boss that I worked for when I was in small molecules was to go back and head translational medicine in the biopharmaceutical space. I've never done therapeutic antibodies before. And so I thought that was a really great opportunity to learn something different. The amyloid things, were they? Or, or they? Yeah, so like the beta amyloid antibodies. I mean, we were working on a number of different ones, including, including therapeutic antibodies for CNS disorders, so for brain disorders. But it's not the best thing to do, David, because their CNS penetration is so low, so low. But their avidity is so high that you actually can get very small concentrations into the brain and then they do something. So I joined Biopharmaceuticals when actually it was still really a company called Demantis. So the way GSK brought in their biopharm division was to buy a company called Demantis that was headed by somebody called Ian Tomlinson. And so I went to work in that, that kind of substructure of GSK, which was great because you have all the opportunities within a small biotech, but underneath the big support of a, a pharma umbrella. So that was really, really well, yes, you need the checkbooks, the big checkbooks. <laughs> you do, you do. That was really interesting. But eventually, Demantis got swallowed up, which, you know, often happens. There's no right or wrong model, really, in pharma. So it all got swallowed up and broken up. And I left at that stage and went into venture capital and worked for Kate Bingham for a couple of years. When she set up the, do, do, do you remember that semi-philanthropic <laughs> Dementia Discovery Fund? Yeah, no, it was really interesting. And, and it was to set up this um, or help Kate to manage this dementia discovery fund that had philanthropic partners. So a lot of pharma invested in it. And it was really to find brand new ideas. So invest quite early with new ideas and then take them to the stage of seed funding and then into a small company. The research was great. I thought it was absolutely amazing. I would say I'm not a hard a hard-nosed investor, really. I, I don't think I fit that bill ever such a lot. But it, it was brilliant while I was there. And then I went to the opposite extreme. I went to a, a non-for-profit organization, Alzheimer's Research UK. And I did two things there. So I was a director of research, which was really great. We had a lot of partnerships, collaborations, and funded all kinds of dementia research. But also I set up, I thought up, set up, and managed a a multifunctional digital diagnostic tool for the early detection of neurodegenerative diseases, which, which is still being funded and still ongoing, and I still advise for that. So it's, it was kind of a way to measure at a really early stage of neurodegenerative diseases on a disease-specific basis the very early stages of that disease so that we could either introduce lifestyle changes or... Go on. All right. Is this blood or is, is it biopsy or is it secret? I mean, it's still in its, I guess, infancy, but it's actually measuring lots and lots of different things using digital tools. So like, you know, fine motor movement, gait, 
cognition. Eventually, we'll measure eye, eye movements of various kind, auditory EEG. And the idea is that across those diseases, at an early stage, when the, when the brain starts to, I guess, malfunction, you will pick up various patterns. So, you know, gait might do that, sleep might do that, EEG might mm-hmm. do that in Parkinson's, but in Alzheimer's disease, it might go the opposite way. And then in, so it's a pattern of really early changes. And then we'll, you know, try and map out those patterns using data science and AI to try and get an early fingerprint of disease progression in different diseases. So then I came from there to here. Tell people what small pharma is. Did you set it up? No, actually small pharma. So I came to interview at small pharma because I guess I was kind of looking for something that I hadn't done before, which was work for a a startup company. So Peter Rands actually set up small pharma. And Peter's idea was that you you use molecules that you already have activities. So they're known, they're already out there, but you change them in a certain way to either make them more efficacious, make them more efficacious in a different disease. And then you you have a expedited development route to take to the market. And I think one of the things that they worked on first, actually, was the one of the derivatives of ketamine. And that got Peter into, I guess, closely, closely into the field of psychedelics. And that's when, and then the company, there were only a few people there, but they did a big review on the psychedelic space and decided to start working on DMT, largely because, you know, not as much, I mean, I know you guys worked on it, but not as much work had been done in DMT. But secondly, because it is a a short duration psychedelic, so not short duration in terms of efficacy, but short duration in terms of psychedelic experience. So in terms of patient convenience, physician convenience, in-clinic convenience, maybe it represents a more, I guess, in-clinic convenient psychedelic. And that's why Peter started to work on that. Yeah, I have to say, I, I, just, I mean, I remember we've, when the drug science set up our, our psychedelic working group, which must be about five, four, five years ago, he was one of the founder members. And he was telling me about this DMT idea. So I was kind of a bit skeptical. I was thinking, well, hang on, you know, we've up to that point, you know, we've been giving people five hour trips with psilocybin, 12 hour trips with uh, with um, LSD and, and very short trips with DMT. And I was thinking, is there enough time in a DMT trip to actually do anything, change anything? But he stuck to his guns. And as we're going to discover in a minute, when you tell us that he, he proved to be right, I was wrong. He did stick to his guns. <laughs> He's stuck to his guns and, and we've proven him right. But in terms of your scepticism, by the way, having never worked in you know the psychedelic area at all, I was when I came to interview with Peter, I was really skeptical of the whole area. But actually, spending a day with Peter and the team, they actually really convinced me. And they spoke about the work that you know you and your team in period have done. And so by the time I'd finished that day, I kind of thought, you know what, there really could be something in here. So I'll join and find out. So I joined when I guess they, you know, the team and Ellen James was spearheading the study. So she had already started working on the design of the study. They went to to get advice from the MHRA and based on that, so the study was just going to be a phase one study, but based on advice from the FDA, they changed that study to a phase one, phase two A study so that you could collect all of the data in phase one in psychedelic naive healthy volunteers, and I'll explain why in a minute, and then roll straight over into a phase 2A study without having to apply back to regulators and ethics. The regulators also were quite happy for small pharma to start a patient study first, but the reason they didn't and the reason they decided to go to start with a phase 1 study is that they 
really wanted to better understand the doses of DMT. And for the audience purposes, SPL026 is our DMT fumarate. So it's a salt form of DMT. The doses of DMT that elicit a psychedelic experience, but are safe and well tolerated. And that's why we selected psychedelic, naive, healthy subjects, because we thought that they would be, I guess, the least psychedelic resilient. And so if it wasn't going to be tolerated, maybe that population wouldn't tolerate it very well. And so we then evaluated different doses of DMT. We kind of went up a dose each time we started a new cohort. Just to clarify for the audience, you'd, you decided to go for intravenous formulation, right? We decided to go to, for intravenous. So, you know, I'm sure you know, and I guess a lot of the audience will know that DMT is not orally bioavailable. But also in terms of clinical trials, it's actually, you know, with intravenous administration, you have a 100% bioavailability. So what you put in is what you put in, and that's what's in the bloodstream. So in terms of trying to correlate amounts of DMT with psychedelic experience, with safety and tolerability, and with PK, it's a fairly straightforward way to do it. So we decided to go intravenously, but then we also changed the protocol for that. So Imperial particularly, but many other people were giving DMT as a a bolus, so as a quick bolus. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to do it as a slow infusion because we thought that if you kind of ramp people up to that psychedelic experience just a little bit more slowly, maybe they will tolerate it a little bit better. And I think that's probably what has happened because we've found excellent tolerability in all healthy volunteers we've dosed and all patients we've dosed so far. So maybe that worked. So yes, a short-term infusion. And we looked at safety and tolerability. We looked at very detailed PK. And we also looked at the psychedelic experience, both in terms of intensity of experience, but also the quality. So we measured quality using a, a whole host of different questionnaires to really understand that relationship between dose, but more importantly, between plasma exposures and psychedelic experience. One additional thing to say is that, you know, we small pharma do believe in giving this psychedelic with support therapy. So that's preparation therapy beforehand so that the patient knows what's going to happen, knows what they're going to get. And you talk about their intentions and you talk about their, for the health volunteers, for patients, you talk about their depression, but you prepare them for the psychedelic experience. And then the therapy afterwards, the integration therapy helps them to come out in a positive way. So it's still a model to the side but just, but it all, ha all happens in one day, does it? Well, I suppose it could happen in one day. I <laughs> so at the moment, and you know, we're refining as we move along. At the moment, we do one preparation session at pre-screening. We do a preparation session the day before dosing, and then a very, very short preparation session just before dosing if the subject needs it. The dose is over 10 minutes. The psychedelic experience takes between 20 and 25. It usually comes on, I guess, about three minutes into that infusion. So that whole dose dosing part takes 30 minutes. And then straight after the psychedelic experience that, I mean, the therapist sits there during the dosing and because it's a very immersive experience. And then as soon as the subject is out of the psychedelic experience and they come right out, you then give the integration therapy, which is a, approximately an hour. And it's just to help the subject or the patient make sense of their psychedelic experience. You talk through the themes, the issues, what they saw, what they felt, and that helps them to come out a little bit more positively. 
Yeah, it's very efficient. What it lasts about three hours on the whole thing, does it? Actually, about two. So depending how much preparation they need just before the dose, that the actual dosing period with preparation, dose, and integration takes about two hours. But then you have the preparation therapy before. And then depending what you need afterwards, you either have follow-on therapy or another integration session. That's, I guess, very much patient-led, but it's also therapist-led as well. If they feel the patient needs further integration sessions, then then we can do that. So quite efficient, non-cumbersome for the patient. Similar to ketamine. I mean, ketamine trips are about an hour. So that's, and, that, and that turns out to be very, a very cost-effective way of delivering therapy because you can do effectively two people a day in, in a clinic. You've got a clinic room. You can do a morning and afternoon. So. Yeah, no, that that's right. Yeah. But it's all predicated on... Whether it works, Carol. So does it work? <laughs> it, it is predicated on whether it works. And those, so then we took a dose from phase one into phase 2A. We did our proof of concept study in patients with major depressive disorder. The design had two phases. So we had a, a blinded phase at the beginning where we compared a dose of uh, DMT with a dose of placebo, both with support therapy. And then at the end, the primary endpoint was at two weeks post-dose. We also measured at one week, but two weeks post-dose. And then after that two weeks, all of the patients rolled over into an open label session where everybody got an active dose. And then they were followed up in study for three months and then out of study for six months. And, And the reason for doing that, well, there are a few reasons. So first, it's ethical. It's good that all patients have the opportunity to have active. So the reasons for doing this, this rather rather elegant design. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. The reason why you did... Yeah. It's a very clever design. Uh, so, yeah, talk us through the different benefits of it. Yes, and why we put that the open label and that second dose on. So, first of all, ethical reasons. So, all patients have the opportunity to have active, which I think is right. But secondly, it also, we hope, would mitigate or negate a disappointment effect if it was there. So the way that we blinded the study is that we made sure that all raters and all assessors were blinded to treatment. Clearly, if a patient has a full psychedelic experience, they're probably going to know. And so they'll probably think they're on active. So it's very, very difficult not to functionally unblind the patient. So, But you blind all the assessors. So all of the assessments are done blinded. But if the patient had placebo or if they didn't respond um, and actually all of the patients did by the way in terms of psychedelic experience all of them did if they you know if they were on placebo they wouldn't definitely know but they might know and then if that leads to a disappointment effect it could potentially bias your placebo group and so the fact that they knew they would get an active dose we hoped would mitigate any potential disappointment effect so you didn't bias your and then finally David you know this is I guess the first um, randomized placebo control study in patients with MDD. So we didn't actually know whether two doses might be better than one. So we thought that would help inform phase 2B as well. And we would really understand the safety, tolerability and efficacy of two doses versus one. So that was another reason for doing it. So did it work? Yes, it did work. So first of all, the primary endpoint was significant. P is point equals 0.02. We saw marked decrease in the MADRA scale. So the MADRAS was the efficacy questionnaire or scale that we used to measure antidepressant effect. It stands for Montgomery Asperger Depression Rating Scale. Um, It's a very common one. It's used, yeah, a lot by lots of people. So we saw a marked reduction at the primary endpoint two weeks. 
like I said, we also evaluated Madras at one week just to try and understand how rapidly the antidepressant effects come on. And again, we saw an even more marked reduction at one week and at all the other time points of 10.8 change in Madras scale, obviously very significant. And then patients had that second dose. And then out we assessed Madras at one week, at two weeks, at one month, at three months, at six months. I'll come on to the six months now. Like you said, the data came out today, but that was out of study. Not all patients came back for that. Um, and again, we saw a marked reduction in Madras, so a, a rapid antidepressant effect at one week. And that effect lasted all the way out to three weeks, such that even just one dose of SPL026 with support therapy had a remission rate of 57% at three months post-dose. There was no significant difference between one and two doses, which is kind of good. It tells us that you don't need two doses. So actually, we can move forward with one dose. Yeah, that's just, Carol, just very important because, you know, I mean, this people are listening to this rather than seeing your pictures of the profile, the time course. What was clever was is not only that you dealt with the nocebo effect, the, the disappointment effect, but that, that, sec, that the group that, did, that had placebo first and the DMT second were get, effective getting one dose. So you could c- compare the effect of one and two. That's why I think it's an extremely clever design. So congratulations on that. And this, that one dose produced as good an effect at three months as the two doses. Is that what you just said? I, do I remember that right? Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. You know, in the two dose group, there are a couple of patients starting to relapse, but there was no significant difference between the two of them. But you're right. We also, just to make sure there was no difference, we looked at that. So the patients that had placebo in the blinded phase and their first dose in the in the open label. So you're right, their first active, we compared that, the effects of that dose with the active dose in in uh, the blinded phase and there was no difference so so you're right theoretically we had you know we could then look at a lot a lot of data from patients on on a single dose so then of the patients that says so 25 patients came back which i thought was actually pretty good 34 patients in total by the way in the in the study 25 of those patients came back for that six month assessment and of the patients that were in remission at three months 64% of them were still in remission at six months. So, you know, that really, really supports the durability of just a single dose mm. of SPL 026 with support therapy. Yeah, it's impressive. Well, I was proved wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like to prove you wrong, David, but this time I do like to prove you wrong. <laughs> yeah, it, it raises an interesting question, doesn't it? I mean, about, is because, you know, up we'd assume that, Quite a lot of work might have been done during us, you know, the four or five hour psilocybin trip. But, uh, but, and I guess I don't know whether you can address this, but I, I mean, I, I guess presumably your explanation would be, you know, even a 20 minutes of seeing something different gives you something to work on. You know, you've changed the brain. They're not, you know, you've given them a chance to escape from the depressive thinking and then they can, they can work on that experience afterwards. I mean, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I guess we're both pharmacologists, but, you know, these drugs have pharmacology. I know we all focus on the psychedelic experience and the psychedelic experience is clearly the consequence of of the pharmacology and not just of 5-HT2A. All of these molecules, to different extents, are agonists at 5-HT1A. 5-HT2C and a number of other receptors. And, And, you know, based on that polypharmacology, I think potentially 
that's why the experiences are different between the different molecules. Now, clearly, the route of administration makes a difference as well. But but there has to be something different about them to give them slightly different psychedelic experiences. So, yes, one aspect is a pharmacology. And, and no matter what that psychedelic experience is like, that pharmacology will be doing whatever it's doing. Changes in neuroplasticity, increases in global connectivity, all of those amazing things that Chris Timmerman talked about in his paper. It was a very difficult paper to read. I had to read it about five times, to be honest. It's, it was very complex. But but so the pharmacology is just something. And so then the question is, even though it's a, a moot point, because all of these molecules will cause a psychedelic experience based on their ph pharmacology, you know, do you need a psychedelic experience? Again, I think our thoughts, certainly with internalizing disorders like depression, probably PTSD, maybe OCD, I, I think we think you do need a psychedelic experience. But but again, until some of the, I guess, newer companies bring these molecules forward without phase, without 2A stimulation, I guess we may never know. But then if you don't have the 2A stimulation, you remove the pharmacology. And so then maybe the neuroplasticity doesn't work either. I mean, it's a really common complex thing and it's and it's almost impossible at the at the moment to separate the two things because like I said it's a moot point you give a psychedelic you get a psychedelic experience but clearly it also has to be the underpinning pharmacology as well so and I guess with DMT now whether that's because the psychedelic experience is so much more intense in terms of what you go through because the pharmacology isn't that different from psilocybin maybe that's why you get you know all of those underlying changes and I guess the fMRI data and the EEG data do support that the mechanistic changes for DMT are the same as the mechanistic changes for psilocybin it just takes four or six hours for psilocybin to do it and, and 25 minutes for DMT to do it. Yeah, the paper that Carol's referring to is a, a one that came out last week or the week before by our group. Chris Timmermans is the first author. It's a PNES. Actually, it's probably the best imaging paper we've ever done because it's the first time anyone has ever done fMRI and EG simultaneously with a second. And it kind of confirms a lot of the theories we've had. So uh, that, that's useful underpinning for, uh, for, for what you're doing. You show people pictures of DMT in the brain. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very, very useful. I will ask Chris if I can borrow some of those. No, it was, a, it was a, an amazing paper. It really, really was. But like I said, very, very complex. But it was great having both the EEG and the fMRI, the, the different methodologies. Yeah, I know it's really good. And I'd like to think all of that underpins the antidepressant effects that we've seen and the durability, I guess, the rapid onset and durability from just one dose. I, I do think it's uh, important to stress that, actually. Yes, it might. I mean, transition, the rapid transition might, in an interesting way, be be more therapeutic. It's a, it's a really moot point, and you need some quite clever experiments to, to separate that. But let's not, let's not worry about the mechanism. Let's worry about where you go next. So what is the next, the next big step for your pharma? I mean, we're doing a few things, but two key things. So the, the next step with this molecule is to move to phase 2B. And one of the key things, there's two additional things we want to evaluate, clearly efficacy and reproductive onset. But the blinded phase will probably be for three months so that we have blinded durability data. But then we'll, we'll again roll them over into a, an open label phase, but where they may, they can have a, an active dose, but they'll only have an active dose if they've relapsed or if they didn't respond at all in the first in the blinded phase and the reason we're doing that is that that will really explore how long this durability how long the antidepressant effects la last it will tell us a lot about relapse 
And then we will dose as patients relapse. So then it will also tell us if you don't relapse until nine months or and you get a second dose, then you go, do you go straight back into remission. So it, it will give us a lot of different pieces, pieces of the pie. Yeah, that's a really, again, you know, that's the great, un, well, sorry, one of the many great unknowns of psychedelics is if you relapse, do they work again? I mean, people tell us they go off and get to retreats in Holland or whatever, and, and they help, but but it'd be nice to have it done in a formal uh, study like you're doing. So, well, that's exciting. That's, uh, it yeah. is exciting. How long before you're on the market? Tell me, you've got another study. Well, no, because I said there were two things. So the other the other thing where, I mean, we are looking at intramuscular administration as well with OT6, but the other thing is we're bringing our deuterated follow-on molecule forward. So that's just started a phase one study in healthy volunteers where we're evaluating the safety, the tolerability, the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics of our deuterated molecule following administration intramuscular versus intravenous. So we get a really good idea of what that molecule looks like and the you know the, the key aspects of the deuterated is you know going back to acetylcholine and esterase inhibitors is that when you deuterate you decrease the metabolism of dmt and so it slightly changes your pharmacokinetic profile which in turn slightly changes your psychedelic experience profile so could that profile a help in looking at different routes of administration b you know potentially it may have better efficacy in either more severe depression or other therapeutic indications so yeah it, it will be really interesting to get the profile of that molecule in healthy volunteers first and then ultimately patients so when it when will you have those two sets of data, do you think? So the healthy volunteer component of, of the phase one study for, and the molecules SPL028, that should be kind of late summer, so August-ish, that time type of time. And then the intramuscular administration for SPL026, within the next month or so, I mean, we should get the data on that reasonably soon. And then we have a profile of everything. What about the clinical? When when were your, you know, your the 2B study, your depression trial? So, yeah, so we'd like to start that towards, I mean, like I said, we're, you know, we're finalizing protocols, we're finalizing preparations, we'd like to start that towards the middle of this year, and and it will probably take about 18 months. I mean, you know, potentially we'll get some of that blinded phase data earlier than that, but but yeah, you've got to enroll, we've got the blinded phase, and we've got the open label, long-term safety, long-term efficacy, relapse type part of the study. So yeah, probably 18 months. And how are you dealing, with? there's been a lot of debate about how you deal with people on SSRIs. Did you take people off your SSRIs for your trial? I, I don't So for the phase, phase 2A study, we, well, we, we took, we did wash off before we gave O26. If patients came to the trial on an SSRI, if they still had depression, so they were diagnosed with depression using the Hamilton D depression rating, the Hamilton depression rating scale, then and we felt it was safe to wash them off and that and that wasn't the case for all of patients some patients we didn't wash off so they couldn't come into this trial we washed them off but we are currently conducting a drug drug interaction study evaluating the safety and tolerability pk and exploratory efficacy of SPL 6 added on to SSRIs because we don't want to wash off David it's not in the best interest of patients to wash them off even when they still come to a trial with depression it's still not so that data should read out in the next few months and hopefully that will be really exciting as well. Yes it'll be fascinating to see if it's the effects are as great and if both in terms of the immediate psychedelic effects or the enduring effects. 
Well, that's a lot of work you've got going on with you, Carol. Um, congratulations on meeting the milestones you've set so far. And uh, I look forward to, you know, if uh, if all pans out well for your next clinical trial, then why don't you let me know and I'll get you back on the program in a couple of years and we can we can celebrate you going from bigger to even bigger farmer then. All right. <laughs> that sounds amazing. That would be brilliant, David. Really lovely to speak to you. Great to have you on the program and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye.